0: You'll find this on page 874. We're in the, uh, the book of Luke, uh, chapter 15, beginning with verse 11 through verse 32. The parable of the prodigal son. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now his older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Pastor Matthew, we... uh, are anxious to hear what the Lord has way, uh, placed on your heart.
1: Mm. Thank you, Craig. <clears throat> I'm glad that, uh, that he read that because I was going to need a moment to compose myself after that introduction. I've, I've never quite been introduced that way, so thank you very much. Good morning. Oh, we got to do better than that. Good morning. There we go. That's, that's the church that I know. Good. Well, as he mentioned, my name is Pastor Matthew Erickson, and um, this is, it's been two years, I know, because Pastor Ben is at council, and I was here two years ago when he was at council. So we can count in two years, I'll be back again. It'll be great. I'll be looking forward to it. Um, my, uh, my family and I drove down uh, from Oak Harbor this, this morning. Um, anybody ever been to Oak Harbor? And we've got a few? Good. Excellent. We've got some, a few folks that have been up that way. Uh, my family, um, our children are fifth-generation would be Islanders. Uh, so we have been on the island for, it's like 125 years on both my mom and my dad's side. And uh, as we drive from Oak Harbor down the freeway and we make our way to Redmond, um, this was a place that I spent a lot of my time, especially in my professional life, because as Craig mentioned, I worked for Starbucks, and some of you may remember that, but um, had a chance to, to open up a number of stores, including the one that's on Novelty Hill and the one that's in Duval and the one that's on Avondale and a number of different stores. So I had the opportunity with Starbucks to be able to get to know this community in a little ways. And then we drove here this morning, and it's been two years, and I feel like I don't know the place anymore. It's amazing how much has grown up. I'm pulling into the Brown Bear Car Wash where there's a gas station because we're almost out of gas, and there was a bigger line to get into the car wash than there was in the gas station, and I, I'm not used to that. We don't even have a car wash in Woodby Island, so this is, the car wash is my son. I mean, that's kind of how that works. <laughs> well, I'm going to start this morning with, with a question, and the question is, have you ever been lost? And I don't mean Existentially, I'm not talking about spiritually. Have you ever been lost? I mean, like, really lost. Like, you went out in the woods and, like, I'm good, and then you find it, and I see some chuckling. So, I know that some of you have been lost on, on some ways. I, I think about my son, who this morning is with his Boy Scout troop, and, and they're actually on their way out. But there have been a couple of times where we've gone out on troop quests and have gotten lost. Um, there are times when I myself have been lost, but the one that I can remember the most is my sister, who when she was about five years old, our family went to the Puyallup Fair. And if you can imagine going from a small town, Woodby Island, where the Woodby Island Fair would fit into a corner of the Puyallup Fair, um, things are just distracting. There's always stuff going on. And as we get down to and we get and we're wandering around, we realize after a moment that Katie's gone. And she, I mean, gone, like we can't find her anywhere. And so my parents are freaking out a little bit and uh, I'm not really at all because I figure it's my sister. So we'll find her at some point. But my parents certainly had some urgency behind them. I was about 11 um, and we try to kind of figure out where would Katie go? Where was, where was home base going to be for Katie? Because we hadn't done the responsible thing. We hadn't talked about like, if you ever get lost, here's where you go. That would have been the smart thing to do. We hadn't, hadn't talked about that. For Katie, it was, where's the food? And specifically, where's the cotton candy? Uh, It wasn't where all the rides are and those kind of things. Where's the pretty stuff going to be? Because that's where my sister was going to be. Unfortunately, we found her holding a cotton candy that somebody had given to her. She was lost, and now she was found. And what was interesting about that is that for my sister, she didn't feel the urgency. The urgency was from her family. The urgency was from mom and dad. Where is our daughter? For what we're going to look at today, that's going to be a theme. Are you lost today? Have you been found? Do you know what it looks like to have a relationship with your father? And for us to explore the scripture, I need to make sure that we give a little bit of a background. Because we start in verse 11, and if you've got your scripture, I would encourage you to just keep it out because we're going to be there. It will not be on the screen, so... Open up your Bible and can kind of follow along with me there. Uh, but we need to understand where did this story come from? Why why are we starting here? What does that look like? For our church family, Hope Church O'Carver, we are on a three-year mission to explore the book of Luke. Um, I was inspired a little bit. The first time that we ever came to this church, um, I believe that we were in Genesis 12. And I remember Ben saying something along the lines of, like, you know where you are in the book. Um, or where you are in the life of this church by knowing where you are in the book of Genesis, because it had taken that long just to get to Genesis 12. And I had a real kind of aha moment of, wow, what if we, instead of creating topical messages, we just walk through the Bible? What if we did that? What would that look like? And so our church a year and a half ago started walking through the book of Luke, and a year and a half later, we're in 15. Tells you how quickly we're walking through it. So we have to ask ourselves the question, where does this come from? Where where do we have this? And so what I want to do is do a quick recap of the first two parables that we see in Luke 15. And the scene opens with Jesus being challenged. In fact, what it shares is that the crowds start to come around Jesus. And what's interesting is that if you look at chapter 14, Jesus talks about a banqueting table. He talks about a homeowner who's going to go out and invite people from around, around the town, around the community to come to his table because those who he invited were no-shows. Everybody's welcome at this table. And then Jesus is going to transition a bit and he's going to tell the people that are around him that if they want to stay with him, if they want to be his disciples, that there's a cost to that. And in one of these moments where I have to just imagine if I am one of his disciples, if I'm one of his inner 12, I'm like, Jesus, don't say the thing. Like we want to keep these crowds around us. Don't call them out. But instead what he does is say, if you want to follow me, you have to hate your mother. And your father, she would even hate your own life. And I can just think, oh, Jesus, what are you doing? Like we could financially really use these people. This could be good for our ministry. But what's interesting there is that the people don't scatter. In fact, the first part of 15, it says the crowds continue to press in around him. And specifically, there's two groups of people that get called out, tax collectors and sinners. Let's go ahead and take a look at that together. One of the things that has changed in the last two years is I have to use these now. And I'm still not used to him, but that's okay. All right, here we go. So it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. I'm going to read that again. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with him. So they're accusing Jesus of having a meal with people that they see are unrighteous, unworthy, people that they shouldn't be eating a meal with, especially not Jesus if he's this one who's teaching these things about God. And so Jesus will take a moment and he will explain two parables to them. He's going to share with them a story about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep And one of those sheep gets lost, and the shepherd, rather than staying with the 99, goes out into the field, and he finds the lost sheep. And he doesn't punish that sheep for running away. My sister wasn't punished for running away. He celebrates. He finds the sheep, brings the sheep home, and there's a celebration. And then Jesus will share another story, a similar story, in which a woman will lose a coin, a very valuable coin, but not valuable from the standpoint of what we may think from the standpoint of monetary value. For a woman who had been married at that time, she would have received a headband with 10 coins in it. For her to lose a coin would have been similar to me losing my wedding ring. It adds urgency to it. She needs to find her coin. She lights a little lamp, goes sweeping through the house, trying to find where is this coin, but when she finds it, calls all the neighbors together and celebrates. Why? Jesus will explain that there is more celebration in heaven for that unrighteous sinner, that broken person who says, I need God. I need God. There's more celebration for that one than there is for the 99 who are righteous. But then the story continues. I was raised in the, the CMA church, Craig had mentioned. I was raised as a, as a member of the Langley Christian and Missionary Alliance Church. It's now known as the Island Church. And one of the things that we had that was powerful was really good, strong biblical teaching, especially for youngsters. Um, and I was raised going to Sunday school. My parents divorced when I was 10. My grandmother threw the three of us kid in the, kids in the back of her 1972 Ford Galaxy, which is as big as the stage, and would drive us to church and make sure that my grandkids got Jesus. And so we did. And we got to know our felt friends. Does anybody know what felt friends are? Yeah, you do, right? We put the little felt pictures up on the thing. We now have PowerPoints. We don't need felt friends anymore. But in those stories, you would hear stories of Jesus and how he interacted with different people. And in this story, we have a favorite of mine because there's few stories in which we get to see somebody who just decides they want to live it up. for a little kid who's trying to understand what it looks like to follow Jesus, this story is compelling. And we know this story. Many of us have been raised in the church. If you're new, then let me retell it for you a little bit. There's a young man who is antsy. He is in his home. He wants what is coming to him. He wants his stake in the family trust and he wants it today. He doesn't want to wait till his old man passes away. He wants that stake today. And so he does the audacious thing. And goes to his father and says, I want you to give me what is mine. And unbelievably, his father agrees. Now, what's not part of the story, but I think of what we have to understand, is that there's a little bit of work that goes into this. If you're going to divide up and give to the younger son what it is that he believes is his, his portion, there's probably land that needs to be sold. There's some division that needs to work. There's some math that needs to be done. And so this work is done. He has given what he believes he deserves, he's given his inheritance and carrying it probably in a little bag along with whatever he could carry, he heads off to another land and he's going to have fun. i tell you what, this guy had fun. He goes into the other land and everything is on him, right? All the wine, all the food, all the parties, he is going to live it up and we are going to have a good time. He is for sure the show. But then over time, monetarily, things start to go away. That fine wine probably becomes a little cheaper, as do probably his friends. And ultimately, he's out of money. And then a famine hits the land. And not only is he out of money, but he's out of food, and he's starting to run out of hope. And the only thing that he can do now is to get a job and probably beg for a job, the landowner who will allow him to work or at least have a place to stay, tending pigs. Pigs. And it's gotten so bad that those carob pods, those pods that that the pigs eat are looking pretty good right now. And for this young man who at one time had all the comforts of home, is reminded of the love that he had back at home. He's reminded of, of a bed that he would have been able to have, all the food that he could have needed, the love of a father. But instead of taking that, he wanted to go a different route. And he's reminded that, you know, I'll bet my dad, I'll bet my father would allow me to come home and stay with him but maybe not as, as his son because I've given up that right but I'll bet he would hire me and I could come on board as a hired servant. So he starts to work up his little speech. He starts to work up what it is that he's going to say to his father and he memorizes it and it's, prob- and it's good and he starts making his way back home. And I don't know I don't know about you, but if you've ever been in a situation where you've had a son or a daughter who has strayed and now is coming home, there is joy that is hard to explain. There is joy that is hard to even comprehend for, for others who haven't. And we see that the father looking far off, he sees that his son and he comes down the lane and he starts coming and you can kind of just picture that the son is working up his little speech that he's going to say and the father's like, oh, no, 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 you are my son. Welcome home. Now for us to get a picture of this story, we need to contrast it against what we see in the world around us today. There are many different religions that we can take a look at around the world. There are many different faiths that we can take a look at. And one of the, the, the things that I'll hear around religion when I when I talk with people is that all religions are basically the same, with just a little bit of differences. What I would submit to you is that for Christianity, what we believe is that there's only one way and everything else falls short. Let me explain to you how. In one of the other prodigal son stories, one that some of you may be familiar with, out of what's called the Lotus Sutra from Mahayana Buddhism, there's a very, very similar story and I'm going to condense it for you. It's a story in which a son also decides that he's going to leave home. And he leaves home and he wants to live it up wherever he's going to go at. And he leaves home and he goes for, for several decades until he ends up wandering back into a town and realizes that in the center of the town is the center of the commerce. And there's one person who runs everything. That person is his father. He doesn't recognize him as his father, but the father recognizes him right away. And the young man thinks to himself, well, maybe, maybe I could get a job. Maybe I could somehow, it because I'm out of money, I'm, I'm out of all kind of options at this point. And as he gets closer, the, the older man, who is his father, beckons him to come and he just panics and he faints, falls down. And in this story, the father realizes that I'm not actually going to be able to engage with him because there's just, there's too much of a distance. And so he sends two of his servants out to basically keep him busy, to give him a job, to allow him to be able to work and to be able to earn opportunity, to earn trust. And he does that for several decades. Now, the story is not totally clear because it's a little bit in the abstract, but there's a point then when the father is on his deathbed, and the young man over a course of decades had had worked himself up, had, had obtained different stations within the business. And it got himself to the point where he was actually working inside of his father's house, but of course he didn't know that. And as the father is laying on his deathbed, he says, everything that I own, everything that is in front of me is going to go to one person. It's going to go to the one person who's in this room who has served me faithfully. It's going to go to my son. And in that moment, reveals that he knows who his son is. And I'm going to read you the moral of that story. The moral goes like this. The householder perceives that his son is able to save, mature, and mentally develop. That in the consciousness of his nobility, he feels ashamed and disgusted About his formal poverty. As we have always observed the moral precepts under the rule of the knower of the world, we now receive the fruits of that morality that we have formally practiced. He came back, he made good, he earned it. He received the fruits of his morality. Folks, what's the difference? What's the difference in those two stories? It's a concept of grace. It's a thing that separates our faith from any other grace. The father runs down the lane to his son and his son wants to earn back everything that he has lost and his father won't even let him get the words out. In the other faith, the other religion, it's all about working for it. And honestly, from a flesh standpoint, from our personal standpoint, we kind of like that because it means that I have control over my own destiny but that's not the gospel. The gospel is that the destiny is taken care of by someone else. Let's get back to the story. The father, he runs down, he invites all the neighbors to come. Why such joy? Why such joy for this man? He could in his heart harbor so many ill feelings toward his son who had left the house, had taken his inheritance. Why such joy? Because of such love because of the love that he has for his son. He thought his son was dead, but instead he was alive. And the son starts to get the words out that he had practiced, and the father cuts him off in the moment. No, let us get the badges of sonship. Let us get those things out that will indicate that he is my son. And there was a great party for his boy, a party of restoration, a party of re-adoption. The robe of honor, the ring of authority, the shoes of sonship would all be handed out to him. There was triumph through joy. There was triumph through love. The Hebrew scriptures or what we know as the Old Testament share many stories of loving fathers and their sons. We can think of Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. The root of joy is the compassion of love. David loved his son Absalom. Some of you may may remember that story. His son, Absalom, rebels against him and ends up on the same battlefield. And the messengers come running to David with the news of what had happened to his son. And the one, the first one who gets there doesn't quite know what's going on, but the second knows the whole story. Absalom, his son, is dead. And David will, will shout out, no, if I could only trade places. If I could only trade places. With my son. There is something about the relationship that a father has with their son. And many of us in the room, in fact, I'm sure all of us would be willing to trade our own lives for our children in a moment. I've known many fam- fathers who would gladly do that, gladly give up their lives for their children. There's something compelling about a father's love. And God cries out. The love of God for his people. The father, this man, is not ashamed of his son. He is not ashamed of his son in front of the people. And then slowly the scene shifts. Because if we've forgotten, there's another brother. There's another son who's a part of the story. The son starts to make his way from the fields. Remember, while his little brother's been having a good time in the other lands, he's been working and working hard. Tending the fields, making sure that things are set up. And sure, there's a financial benefit to him. If he continues with that as his father passes away, he'll have the opportunity to continue to run the operation. But he starts making his way to the house and can tell that something's going on. Because this isn't just like a light the lamp and we're going to put some music on. This is a party, and this party is rocking. And he will ask one of the guys there, he'll say, What's going on? And the servant will explain, but. Every one of us knows that he knows what's happened. He knows. He knows that that one has come back. And you can just feel the emotion. You can feel the emotion that is welling up inside of him as he has anger and feels the alienation. And the father goes down the lane again. What a beautiful picture. The first time the father goes down the lane to greet the young son. The second time he goes down the lane to greet the older son, to have a conversation with him. But this one is alienated and he is furious. He rejects the grace of his father. Everything is mine. It has already been divided. And what we tend to forget in the story is that when the father gives the ring, the slippers and the robe, whose is it? It's the older brother's. It's his stuff because it's already been divided. The younger son owns nothing. Wrap your mind around that a little bit. So this young man, this older brother, is furious and he rejects the grace of the father that's in front of him. He has anger. He is furious. He has no love for his younger brother. He has no love for his father. And the father will gently rebuke him. But there is a love of the Father that transcends. He says, do you love me? Will you show love to your brother? What should he have done? We turn this into a moral tale. There's lots of ways that we could go with it. It reminds me of a story from the Vietnam era. There was a gentleman named Donald Dawson who was was an older brother to a younger brother named Daniel. Daniel was a pilot and he fought... In in Vietnam and during Vietnam, his plane was shot down, missing in action. Nobody knew where he was. So the older brother, Donald, ends up having his wife go stay with her parents. They rent out their house and he buys a plane ticket one way to Vietnam. Has leaflets and flyers that are made up that says, have you seen the pilot? Have you seen this young man? And goes around town after town looking on a search, looking, pursuing his younger brother. At one point, he will stumble into a Viet Cong encampment and himself be imprisoned for 15 months until the end of the war when he's released. He never finds his brother. Brother is missing in action, assumed dead. But he searched for him. He looked for him, tried to find him. One of the questions that we will ask at Hope Church, it's two questions really, Is what does the scripture have for us today? What does this have for us? What does God have for us today in the passage that we're looking at? And the second was if we know that, what are we going to do about it? One of the things that we will pray for is to ask God to give us courage to actually go out and do the things that He has called us to do. God, what do you have for us? What do you have for us in the Scripture? This is an interesting story. In the first two parables, we have a shepherd who loses a sheep and he leaves the 99 behind to go after the one. In the second story, and we can assume in that one that Jesus is the shepherd. In the second one, Jesus, a little bit unique, is the woman looking for the coin, searching for the coin. When she finds the coin, there's a party and a celebration. What's different between that story and the one that we just heard? Something is lost. Something is found, and there's a party. But the difference is, in the third story, there's no search. In the first two, a shepherd is looking for something. In the, sec- in the second story, the woman is looking for something. In the third one, there's no search. So why put the story in here? It doesn't seem to quite match up with the first two. And we have to be reminded of the question or the statement that the Pharisees, those religious leaders, had put out to Jesus in the beginning. Let me remind you of what they say. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying this, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. When we look at the Hebrew scriptures, when we look at the Old Testament, one of the beautiful things that you can do is to take a look at a character say Moses, and look at his life and to be able to see how his life was fulfilled and ultimately was made greater by one who came later, Jesus. How is Jesus the greater Moses? Well, Moses took his people, an imperfect man, took the Israelite nation out of Egypt into almost the promised land. Well, how is Jesus the greater Moses? Well, Jesus liberates all of us and is bringing us home to the promised land that we don't earn, but that we have an opportunity to experience because of his life laid down. And there's so many of those stories, David and Goliath. How is Jesus the greater David? Well, sometimes we will tend to insert ourselves into David saying, we can be like David, slaying the sins of our life, slaying the giants of our life. And we forget that, "Mm, no, we don't actually get to do that. Jesus is the greater David. We are the cowering Israelites in the corner, hoping for a savior. When Jesus goes out and saves. And in a very similar fashion, Jesus inserts himself into this story in a different way. How? Well, let's take a look at it. The Pharisees were having their portrait literally drawn and put right in front of them. Jesus illustrates two stories of a shepherd and a woman. It's easy to understand. Go and search. Come back. Celebrate. But the third story, you got to think a little bit. And he literally draws out the picture of the Pharisees as the older brother. As the one who is righteous. As the one who, I deserve this. I have earned this. What do you mean you're going to kill the fattened calf? I couldn't even get a goat to be able to share with my buddies. He paints this picture of the older brother. And in this story, there is no search. The parable was originally told because Jesus was eating the public with sinners, and it was a response to the Pharisees questioning why he would be eating with tax collectors and sinners, those broken, unrighteous Jews. He was eating with them because, and don't miss this, he was seeking them out to save them. Going where they were in order to be able to bring them home. And what's unique about this is that If we take a look at the story and we take out the cardboard cutout of the Pharisee in the picture of the older brother, we can look and see what would have happened if Jesus was in that position. What would that have looked like differently if Jesus was the older brother and not the Pharisee as he wrote it? Well, I think in that case, we know that he would have gone out for his younger brother. He would have gone into the other country. He would have picked up his brother in that pig pen, would have dusted him off and said, let's go home and taken him home. Let's go back to our father's house together. Let me bring you back in relationship. I know you don't deserve it. You've given up all your rights. I get it. Let me bring you home. That's Jesus in this story. And he brings them back. We're only one chapter removed from chapter 14 in which the father opens up the banqueting table. All are welcome. All are welcome here. And Jesus in his life gives us the opportunity to see what that relationship could look like with God. And the feast, instead of just being food, the feast is his body and his blood laid out for us. We're going to take communion in a little bit. Think about that. He has laid it all out for us. A body broken, a blood that allows us to know the Father because it has washed away our sin. Jesus Christ rejoices in the wonder of what he can do as he draws you into his heart. Why is there joy? There's joy because there's such love. Such love from him. So here's the question, and these are one of these fun questions that pastors get to ask. What kind of sinner are you? Don't worry, I'm asking myself. Are you the Pharisee? Or are you the prodigal? Or maybe a blend of both. Are we debased and despised at the same time? We are to come home to joy, and if we come home to joy, then what should we do? We go out with joy. We don't just come home and enjoy really good worship and maybe some good fellowship after a service. We go out into our communities with joy, with hopefully a heart to serve those who are around us. And why do we do this? Because we're looking to get little crowns on a checklist? No. We do this because we have been served so well by a God who loves us so much. We come in with joy. We go out with joy. What is the message of the gospel? Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. We see it in the, in the love of God. We see it in Jesus Christ. We see it in him. He is the true older brother. And the feast that he provided is the feast of his own body and blood laid out for us. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. He is the one who is, seeking, who is the seeking shepherd to find the lost. He's the one who is the resurrection and the life to raise the dead. He is the one who is the heir and the father can indeed say to him, you are ever with me and all that I have is yours. He is the son, but he becomes the servant in order that we may be called no less than sons of God. Think about that. Sons of God. He found you in the pig pen. He found me in the pig pen. He put his arms around us and he brought us home. If we are believers in Jesus Christ today, it is because he found us. Too often I'll hear the line, I've been looking for Jesus. I've been looking for him and I just found him. And I'm so tempted to say, yeah, he never went anywhere. Jesus has been looking for you. He's been looking for your family. Jesus is in pursuit of all of us. He spread the feast he brings you the celebrated feast that only you can find in the Father's house. Knowing love means knowing Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, part of, part of our journey is understanding what this story looks like practically for our lives. Craig had mentioned that four years ago, uh, we've, we had the opportunity to, to be in Oak Harbor and to start a church church. And starting that church was in part due to some of the the support that we had from this church family. As Craig had mentioned, we were part of the Greater Seattle Network, a network of about five or six churches that had looked at, you know, maybe one church can't plant another church, but maybe five or six could. And so a network gets formed together, and our family happened to be the first ones to to be blessed by that. We moved to O'Carver, actually we moved five years ago, I'm think about it, it's five years in August it will be, and when we moved to O'Carver, we didn't know anybody in O'Carver. Even though we've been on the island for a number of years, um, our challenge is that when you go across the Mason-Dixon line, which is Coopville, um, <laughs> there's just not… There's not a lot of commonality there. And so for us, living on the South End, it's take the ferry boat to go to Walmart, take the ferry boat to go to Winco or whatever. You know, I worked in Seattle, so I wasn't going through Oak Harbor was where you went to the bathroom on the way to Mount Vernon. It just wasn't, it wasn't a place that you hung out. So when we moved to Harbor, uh, we landed in and parachuted as a family of five. And we had one person that we knew. A, pa- a pastor in town, a guy named Andy Mahoney, who I had met at a breakfast and he came up to me and said, I don't know what it is, but God is telling me that I need to support you and our church needs to support your family. And so they did. They brought me on staff where I had the opportunity to lead worship once, once or twice a month, got a chance to, to preach. And at the end of that year, they sent us out as their church planters. This was not a CMA church. This is a four-square church but a pastor with a kingdom mentality of, we just need more people to know who Jesus is. And so they pushed us forward and continued to put wind in our sails. And our main goal that first year was to make a hundred friends. And when you come in and parachute in, there's lots, like, what is the strategy? What's the, what's the silver bullet? And at the end of the day, it's all about relationships. It's all about get involved in your community. You've got kids that are in elementary and middle school at that time. Then you're involved in elementary and middle school stuff soccer games and choir, game, or choir um, performances and, and band and also Boy Scouts, all that kind of stuff you get involved with. And through that, we've had the opportunity to make a lot of relationships, make a lot of friends, and we started to slowly pull together people who wanted to know who Jesus was. The majority of the people that we connected with in the beginning had nothing to do with church. They, many of them, church was an echo. My parents or grandparents never went to church um, we, we will tell stories even to this day, like the story of the prodigal son, and it will not be known. Never heard it before. What a gift that is, that we get the chance to be able to share these stories fresh and anew. And so for that first year, it was about gathering families. And the, in the years after, it was continuing to do that. And we have um, established a church that's based on three things, faith, hospitality, and service. Faith means that we spend a lot of time in scripture, in the word, and We worship. We teach people what it looks like to love God, love God as well as you can because He loved you first. And so we worship. We take communion together. We teach sacraments, basic things like baptism. I think there's a picture of of a baptism that we did a couple of years ago. And we do that because it's what Jesus told us to do faith, hospitality. We love to have food, we are really good at it too. Um, after a while you get really good. One of the, just the things that I loved as a kid is we had Sunday dinner. I don't know if anybody's ever done that, but sometime between two or four o'clock, the family gets together and everybody just has dinner. And that was this thing that we did as well as we would do Sunday dinner. We have met for four years, basically at four o'clock on Sunday afternoon, which allows us to come here. Um, so Sunday at four o'clock we meet, we have a meal together and that first group ended up multiplying into a second group. It's called Sunday brunch. You can probably guess why. They meet at 11. Um, so we have Sunday brunch and Sunday dinner. And, and over, over the time, because we live in a Navy community, we've had people cycle in and out. Uh, but we're in that place now where we are ready to move into the next phase of planting Hope Church. About a year ago, we started meeting on a monthly basis, pulling both communities together in what we call the Gathering. And this is basically another dinner, but it's an opportunity to do this, to have a full worship service and to have people share testimony about what's going on in the lives of these individual communities um, with the rest of the family, and then we get to celebrate that. Things that may seem small, but are big. Things like two families that we had prayed for, that God would keep them in Oak They were Navy families, and by all intents and purposes, they were gone. Because after three years, you move on to the next thing. And for whatever reason, and we know why, The detailers in both cases said, you're staying in Oak Harbor. And we get to celebrate that because that's no small thing when a family gets to stay for another three to four years and be able to serve as part of Hope Church. I mentioned faith and hospitality. The third thing is service. So just as Jesus went up on the mountaintop and prayed, just as he called his disciples together, just as he had fellowship, Jesus was involved in his community. He was healing people, casting out demons. He was at service to folks, mostly to folks who everybody else really would have ignored. And so our role is to try to replicate that, not just scattergun where we just kind of say, hey, we're just going to be at service to all people in Oak Harbor. When you're a family of 40, that's hard. Uh, But rather, who is God calling us to serve? In the beginning, it was families with special needs children. How do you love a family with a special needs child well? How do you love that child well? Uh, about a year ago, we were able to be a part of um, starting a group that specifically works with middle school and high school students with special needs across all spectrums. It gives us an opportunity to be able to serve and love those kids, but it also gives us an opportunity to give Matt, mom and dad a night off. And in that, we get the chance to be able to get to know them better. Um, for our other community, it's about serving and understanding where they are going, Northwood Bee Middle School. So we've adopted Northwoodby Middle School, and every Monday at 115, we do Middle School Monday, where we entertain kids for an hour and 15 minutes because nobody else in the community will. And when we ask the principal, what do you have? What's on your checklist of stuff that you need? I said, that's number one. Early release Monday. It's kind of, a, kind of an odd thing, but on early release Monday at 115, everybody goes home except for the kids in sports, and they have to wait an hour and 15 minutes for their coaches to come and serve them who are in their classrooms doing their work. And so for the last couple of years, it's been 115 kids with two paraeducators, which those odds are not good. Not good at all. My wife's a paraeducator. She can tell you that. Um, And so we have eight to 10 people in our community that come and serve at the school and just love on kids and starting to build what we hope is equity within the school for people to ask, why are you guys doing this? Now, when I had a conversation with a principal, and I know you're an assistant, so you can tell me if I was wrong, but um, in my conversation with the principal, when he asked us why we would want to do this, my response was, as a follower of Jesus, it would not be authentic if I was not involved in my community. It would be inauthentic of me not to be involved. We feel we're called to the school. And he said, okay, great. Just don't hand out tracts. I was like, we wouldn't do that anyway. Um, so we just serve and love kids. And then try to find ways that we can connect with teachers and principals and just love on them. So, our big change for this year is that we're going to be moving from one public service to two public services. That'll start in October. Um, There's a picture of the church family, um, if we go back to that. This is our core team. Um, We have about 40, 40, 40 to 50 people that are a part of our church. But these are the ones who have said, we're all in. Financially, with our time, with our talents. We want to help see this continue. And we sat, Stephanie and I, in tears about, probably about September, the first time we met with this group saying, we've been waiting for three years. Sorry. It's hard. (laughs) So these people have stepped up. You might know Jeff Case because he used to go to this church. He's the one on the far left. It was about 30 years ago, so you'd have to have been here quite a while. But um, he got to talking to Ben at a stir event that we did a couple of months ago. And Ben was like, I think we know some of the same people. So Jeff and his wife, Colleen, and he would tell you he looks different today because he was in a very different place in his life. But, well, it was 40 years ago. Um, but also helped plant our church in Cleelum. Um, our Alliance Church over there as well, but um, God has brought people to us who have seen this vision of planting a church in Oak Harbor. Um, I can tell you we did not fully, <laughs> man, we did not fully understand, I think, what it was going to look like to do that. We just didn't. Um, and we certainly could not have done it if we didn't have church families like this who were praying for us, just keeping us in your thoughts interceding on, on, our, on our behalf. Maybe reading the newsletter every now and again. And just being there. Ben is a friend of mine because we were connected here and I appreciate that. So the last slide that I leave with is, is this one of my son. I should get through this. Um, so this picture is about three years old, I think. Miles is now six feet tall, which is hard to believe is an eighth grader. Um, but this, was, this is a picture we've used to demonstrate the love that God has for us. This is his little buddy <clears throat> who also happens to be a cousin It's Owen, and uh, I actually get to marry his dad and his new wife in August, which is pretty awesome. Um, And uh, this is the picture that we've used to be able to illustrate that God never stops pursuing us. And in those moments, in those times where we feel like it is dark and it is not worth it anymore, God never stops pursuing you. In those moments where there is a struggle beyond what you think you can handle, God never stops pursuing you. And at the end of the day, he doesn't just chase, he picks you up and carries you home. He carries you home. Thank you for being a part of our journey. It feels so, I can't believe it's been two years. It feels like it was just yesterday. But we really appreciate it and we appreciate what God, we've seen here and what he's doing in Oak Harbor as well. Pastor Craig.